Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, since I've got kind of a busy schedule for the next 10 days or so, I thought that I would get another podcast out today rather than uh, wait for a full week to pass since my last one. And since my previous podcast was largely about Dr. Timothy Leary, I thought that it might be interesting to hear directly from the good doctor himself today. And so I've selected another recording from the Leary Archive that one day will be available, uh, at least for researchers, in its new home at the New York City Library. But as you most likely know from previous podcasts, a few years ago, uh, through the efforts of Bruce Damer and then the uh, then-keeper of the archive, Dennis Berry, I received copies of the audio material from the archive that uh, they'd managed to digitize before the collection was sold to the library. And uh, gradually I've been playing some of this material here in the salon. Of course, uh, if you don't want to wait for me to get around to all of it, you can uh, also find all of this material in the Internet Archive. Uh, It's in the Psychedelia Collection, uh, along with a wealth of other historical recordings that probably will be of interest to you. So, if you get a chance, you may want to surf over to archive.org and uh, poke around a bit. Now, today I've picked out two recordings to play for you. The second one is an 11-minute piece that was done by NPR Radio, or National Propaganda Radio, as I like to call it. And that little piece is an audio collage of people commenting about the life of Dr. Leary, and uh, which were recorded just a few weeks before he died in May of 1996. And I've added that mainly to give you a little better idea of the grand manner in which Timothy Leary departed this world. But the first recording that I'm going to play today is from a 1995 interview that was conducted by none other than Jerry Brown, who is right now, once again, the uh, governor of the state of California. And just to be clear on something here, I know that people like to think of Brown as some kind of a liberal governor moonbeam or something like that, but in my opinion, he is no friend of the psychedelic and cannabis community. A couple of years ago, I was talking with Ethan Nadelman, who is the founder and the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, and Ethan told me of an interaction he once had with Jerry Brown that left me with the opinion that the governor is being manipulated by his political donors more than his conscience. In particular, one of his biggest sources of campaign cash is from the prison industry, which, as I mentioned in my previous podcast, receives five times as much tax money from the state than do the schools in California. So, you can form your own opinions about Jerry Brown, but I think you can figure out how I feel about him. Anyway, uh, back in 1995, Jerry Brown was out of public office for a spell, and so, among other things, he hosted a radio program on which one of his guests was Dr. Timothy Leary. And here's that interview, which was conducted sometime in October of 1995, I believe, which was about, I guess, uh, maybe six months before Dr. Leary passed on to his next great adventure. Welcome to another edition of We the People. This is Jerry Brown, and this is the show that uh, attempts, works to, and hopefully gets behind the media, behind the cultural veils that obscure our clarity and understanding for ourselves and for the people around us, for our culture. 
This is a show not of the left or of the right, but hopefully of an expanded awareness of what we can do and, and what we are. Today is not Columbus Day, even though you'd think that, uh, hearing on the radio and other media outlets. That's tomorrow. But in this age where everything is celebrated or not celebrated out of sorts and out of phase, that's the way they do it. It reminds me, uh, when I was governor, I was asked to make Admission Day, September 9th, a movable feast so people could have a three-day weekend driving away somewhere, and I vetoed it on the ground that we have so little memory already that if we don't keep our holidays on the correct days, we won't even know what we're holidaying about. And secondly, why do we have to get away for three days? Why can't we be right where we are? And being right where we are reminds me of the famous saying of our guest this hour, that of Timothy Leary, when he said, tune in, drop out, or was it tune in, turn on, and drop out? A man who uh, excelled in the academic world at Harvard, uh, was one of the first pioneers of LSD and other psychedelics, known very much and identified with the 60s, but continuing to write, to explore, to pioneer, and uh, even as we speak, is the author of a recent book called Chaos and Cyberspace. Another book which I'm looking at here is a reissue from the late 60s called Timothy Leary, High Priest. All of these books are going to be available for those that wish to call in and support the, um, the membership drive at, here at KPFA. We're also simulcasting uh, in uh, New York City at WBAI and also in Fresno. So, right off, I, uh, uh, Tim, are you there? I'm here, Governor Brown. Happy to be with you and happy to be on this station. Well, thank you. I'm happy, also happy for WBAI, my favorite East Coast uh, station. Well, thank you. So we're, we've got a lot of people out there that are listening. We're, we're going to give them a chance to call uh, as soon as we have a chance to just kind of establish the groundwork here, uh, the, the, the whole frame of reference. Now, I want to just start right off here. Um, you were, I, I'd like to get a sense of how your sense of things has changed from just that time before you left Harvard and you had a certain perspective on the world, probably very much influenced by the academic scientific paradigm a time of the uh, a time and the way you see things after all your explorations and and um, celebrations and heartaches that have come over the last thirty years. Can you give us kind of a little brief uh, evolutionary history of your own consciousness? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm not asking you for the whole yeah. ball of wax here, but I know that if you had a, a snapshot of the way the world looked to you, say like 1960, and the way the world looks to you today, I, I have a hunch that no, it must uh, be pretty different. Uh, we should uh, lay the ground framework here. Hmm. Number one, that uh, like most people my age, uh, I'm having thrilling discoveries in amnesia that sometimes I, I forget what I'm talking about. Uh, this kind of adds a thrill. But it certainly is going to, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember all the things that you want to remember, but I'll just fabricate and make up answers, okay? So at least keep in the spirit. I'll try to. So, I mean, I mean, you must have had a kind of a, a more linear, rigid view of the world, a la 1958, than you do 1995. Jerry, I, I've been thrown out of, like, four of the top schools by the time I was 20. I was thrown out of a Jesuit school, Holy Cross, in Worcester. Uh, I was silenced at West Point and made a deal with it. And, uh, so I was, oh, you I, went to you went to West Point? Yeah, I didn't know that. I was born at West Point as a baby, and then I went back there and spent almost two years there. <clears throat> and I was never uh, 
linear. I was always looking at it like an alien. What what are these guys doing, dressing up like that and pretending to uh, to uh, yeah? So I've been a uh, almost like an alien presence. Uh, uh, Harvard. Uh, I got my uh, doctorate. In Before I want to just I got to stop you right there though, when you because I did study to be a Jesuit priest for four almost four years. I know. Did you derive anything from your time at Holy Cross? Sure, I learned a lot about how the, uh, the mentality works, and uh, yes, I, I have a great deal of affection. Uh, and I must say, of all the orders in the Catholic Church, the, the Jesuits are certainly the elegance and the uh, and the uh, most intellectual and most uh, futuristic. So you belong in the Jesuits if you're going to be in the Catholic thing, and I congratulate you. Well, I'm not in the Jesuits, and I can't really say I'm in the Catholic thing, but I always feel that those realities stay with us in some in some form. Yes, okay, I, so you went on to Harvard, as in, you no, your pe- I went to, so I went to World War. I was in World War II for four years. I have over five years of military service there. I was at West Point after Holy Cross, and uh, I got into a very interesting thing where I was court-martialed with the officers with their sabers, you know, and they acquitted me of the charge uh, that I got into a power struggle. So I was been out there, uh, you know, uh, in the in the major games going, you know. Uh, Jesuit schools in West Point, and then I went to UC Berkeley, and then later Harvard. Yeah, I like to be where the action is, and where I can learn most. And the smartest people are hanging out those places. At some point, though, you must you you left uh, you you started experimenting with LSD, and then not too long after that, you dropped out of Harvard, or they kicked you out, or you or what? <laughs> One of the choices, yeah, all of the above. Uh, all of the above. I had no intention of being at Harvard for more than two years. The last thing I ever wanted was. Tenure, life, get out of here. But uh, the stuff was so interesting, I did stay on a couple of years later. About I had left by the time they fired me. Uh, and there was quite a bit of mutual respect uh, with uh, many of the professors at Harvard. Uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, that was because we were experimenting with, uh, with uh, psychedelic drugs. Now, I'd always been kind of uh, down on drugs because uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, tranquilizers, used by doctors in the 60s as a drug in housewives. They didn't like that at all because it took away from their own individual choice. But uh, I did become a, a very enthusiastic uh, uh, user of uh, psychedelic drugs in my own research, uh, my own brain, and, and telling people about it. Okay, so here we are, you know, many, many years later. Uh, does the world, I, I, I mean, I'm trying to get you to contrast, maybe that's a dumb question, but I, just the idea of what you what you see now out there in the world, is it is it something that, uh, I don't know, yeah, did you miss uh, it before, no, or is there, is there some new, or not new, but not you, you must have something you're focusing on that you didn't see before. Politically correct to say this, but uh, I think things are improving at a, at a dizzying speed. We're aware of stuff now about uh, you know, fathers uh, molesting their wives and kids. It's been going on more, more, more in the past, but now we're aware of it. All these issues of uh, inequality and of uh, uh, power, uh, we're very aware of it. So there's a tremendous, uh, uh, the kids today, 10, 15 years old, uh, spending their time with this new language computers. Uh, they're just not going to be the docile uh, uh, followers uh, that their parents and grandparents were. So this is pretty interesting. We're improving at a dizzying speed. Now that certainly that certainly is not politically uh, politically correct. It's a it's a fra- it's an interesting point of view. So in that sense, you're pretty you're pretty optimistic or very optimistic. Well, also, it's the use of the pronoun. See, if I say we, we are evolving. If you say no, we're not. Well, then you're not one of my we. You're your we. So it's great. <laughs> uh, 
I love that pronoun "we." Well, yeah, "we" is a, is a real weasel word. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Yeah, it's only the small groups. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, we is, I mean, I, I agree. Politicians always talk, we, we are going to make America better. Who do they mean? They mean General Motors? They mean they, them and their wife? Uh, Ten people? All 265 million? You know, so that you're right. It's not a very clear way, and in fact, it's a form of obfuscation that is used. Yeah, well, you're, you're right, too. We, we both agree on that. That's good. Okay, well, all right. So when you say we're improving, are, are you not... Um, I mean, we can speed up the way we can impact the world, say, with genetic engineering and nuclear weaponry. But uh, does that mean, okay, so doesn't that mean we can destroy things just that much e- more easily? Who's we? You can, I guess. I don't know. Well, no, I can't because I don't have it. I don't even know how to do that stuff. But uh, the human race, in some of its, you know, at Los Alamos Laboratory or somewhere, uh, you have these toys. These They're not toys. They're awful weapons. And they keep uh, refining them, and they keep in, in getting more of them. They they exist and are in the hands of somebody, well, and right therefore now, the American government is working seriously to find uh, uh, you know in, where, where these, uh, these nuclear weapons are. And uh, I think there's a very 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 strong anti-nuke feeling, uh, which didn't even exist. Yeah, and naturally the the generals don't like that, but they, even they are aware of the uh, of the problem. The first time I've ever been praising generals, is, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll never do it again, Jerry. Well, no, I I, I um, understand that. That's probably, but but here's what's what's. Um, so you're really making the point that at least now the the United States is trying to get rid of some nuclear weapons, uh, which wasn't even the case 20 years ago. I don't even use the word United States. Okay, I, I'm not. If there is such a thing, I'm not part of it. All right, I'm not an American. I'm a. What are, you're an I'm alien. A, I'm a Californian, and maybe right. I'm a, you know, a Southern Californian. It's a real battle between the uh, the elegance of San Francisco and the vulgarness of L.A., you know. I'm caught in that. I, I, great. I, uh, uh, but you don't have that national identity. That's just a little no, too broad. Sure. No, boy, that's uh, yeah. uh, And uh, by the way, my disillusion with politicians is I, we get it from the young kids. I was so thrilled in the last elections and all the polls show that most kids today do not believe that politics is the answer, or certainly partisan politics. And that, that, that lesson has sunk in, and that's, I think, a, a, a payoff a 21st century uh, model. Okay, so that, that's, a, that, that's an improvement because the partisan politics really creates a diversion from looking at the truth, looking at what's really happening, and therefore being in a position to do something constructive or creative. Yeah, politicians are not going to do it, so there's try to keep them as far as possible away, but uh, uh, with your friends and the local community. Okay, so that, that's where you see the, the only, the place, the, the locus of, of, of human activity of some kind of change has to be in the neighborhood, among people, uh, at a more human, smaller scale. Is that half, of, half of the time, Jerry, but see, the glorious thing there is that everyone in the 20th century, 21st century is going to have this screen, and there, they're no longer... It's the global village, as McLuhan said, so that you have your own small, real material, uh, you know, a palm tree or a fir tree, local community, that bang, open up that window, and uh, you're, uh, you're involved in the most thrilling uh, international uh, interaction. Okay, so you got your local where, where you kind of identify L.A. or neighborhood, wherever, where Benedict Canyon, where you are. But you're saying with the screen now, you're out there in some kind of global 
cyberspace where you're now in uh, part of this larger uh, community, this larger conversation but I'm that's not going out on. there, Jimmy. That's uh, uh, Jerry. Uh, they're in me too. Okay, <laughs> they're out there, and, and out there is in there with you. I had a great experience. Uh, I, I just been hooked up with this new ISDN, uh, Pac Bell equipment. Yes. That uh, is, is basically I got uh, a lot of high powered uh, video. That anyone can have this now. Right. No, well, we have it here. I, yeah. I yeah. So what do you use it though for? So you have it, but what for? What? I will calm down. I'll tell you. Okay. The first thing they did when they hooked it up, it is set up. There was some sort of a raid in London with about three thousand kids, and boom, there I can see the kids. And I say, are you there? Take a second, they shout, yes! And they could see me in my study, and I could see them in real time. Now, that was a life-changing experience for me. Like, that one thing has happened to me, and it will be happening to everyone within two or three years when they get these uh, pack bell wires in there. Uh, that, that's hopeful. Okay, so now you're breaking down some boundaries here, and you're, you're able to at least visually participate with stuff thousands of miles away. Yeah, and at the speed of light, using the, the non-polluting language of the, of the, yeah, of the universe, really, light, electromagnetic, uh, we got a telephone problem here, but here. No, it's okay. Okay. Uh, look, we're going to take a break. You're back with We the People. I'm Jerry Brown, and I'm talking to Timothy Leary. Uh, you just mentioned uh, Marshall McLuhan and the speed of light. I remember Marshall McLuhan uh, telling me several years ago that in, I remember the phrase because it, it really got my attention he says there is no morality at the speed of light would you have any comment on that Tim? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well I know what he means uh, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to put into low down words but uh, say it one more time Jerry. well there's no what I think it means uh, he said, uh, Marshall McLuhan said, there's no morality at the speed of light. And what I take that to mean, that morality is built up in, in villages, out of custom, through settled relationships, through uh, patterns of behavior, people uh, doing things to each other. Uh, over time, uh, over generations, you get kind of, you know, you, you get a sense of what's right and what's wrong. But if you're moving... At, at, you know, at the speed of light, you're never in one place long enough to have any bond or connection uh, requiring a, the kind of responsibility or the link or the bond that uh, morality implies. So that's, that's the way I interpret it. I'm not sure yeah, you don't, what he meant. You don't have to even say morality. It's just social structure, rules. <clears throat> they build up like three strikes you're out, mm -hmm. nine men or women on a team. Yeah, and the faster you go, the less... Uh, Keep moving the faster you move. Now, when you describe this beam, it kept moving, 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 and never made a lot of attachment. Now, that's the story of my life. I have moved, uh, I have a list of the places where I've actually had post office boxes, and there are close to a hundred uh, movements in uh, four continents. And uh, also, uh, my interest has moved too. Uh, that's simply the, uh, that's the Einsteinian uh, motto uh, keep moving. You just keep on moving. Well, uh, certainly you don't step into the same river twice. That's what Heraclitus said. I like that one, too. You don't step into the same river twice. Let's go to uh, Peekskill. Yeah, well, that implies, though, that it's the river that's moving, not you. You can jump into the river and just zoom down and uh, 
Well, that's, I'll, I'll drop it now, Jerry. Yeah, well, I, 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 that's, it's more of a metaphor. But I don't I, want to argue with a wise Greek. Well, the wise Greek. No, I only took a year of Greek, and I didn't really understand it that well. <laughs> Let's go to Peekskill, New York, where Rob is on the line. He's calling us long distance from New York. Rob, you got a question or a comment for Tim Leary? Uh, yes, I do. Thank you very much. Uh, you're sounding very optimistic, and it, uh, it sounds encouraging to hear somebody talk so optimistic about all the technology that I've been hearing most people worry about. But I just wanted to hear you address how you, with the dizzying speed that you talk about things advancing at, how do we feel certain that those who want to stay in power, who are in power now, aren't going to have a little more dizzying speed on their side and be able to stay just one step ahead of the people who would otherwise be able to use that technology to bring ourselves together and get everyone on the same page? Okay, Rob, you thank you. You that beautifully. That's the basic uh, dance of human evolution or human politics, and you stated it so, uh, so clearly. Now, what do you think the solution is? I think the solution has to be to get the media through the, uh, with the cyberspace media that's coming out to be a worldwide data source, get that into the hands of the people immediately. Well, I, I, I'm convinced that a, a small group of people who are free of the... Uh, of the dogma, can think faster and, and smarter uh, and more successfully than massive bureaucracies. We can think better than they can because they have these enormous swollen bureaucracies and they're all just looking up to please the guy above them. And we're free as long as we do it in groups and keep moving. But, uh, that's the lesson of, uh, of human evolution as I see it. Okay, so, so Tim, you're saying in small groups... Uh, people are able, through their own minds, but with the tools of new technology, able to really outthink and outwit these uh, swollen bureaucracies of, of government and possibly even of the corporate world as well. And the nice thing about it, Jerry, is see that the teams, you don't stick with them all your life. You know, I'm not going to be an alpha one, three all my life. You play the game, just like it's a metaphor from sports. You play on the team for a while. Don't spend all of your life doing it. You move on to other teams. But the, 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 the principles are the same. Fair play, honesty. You know, we're in it together. And, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, uh, keep changing teams. Uh, in the past, it was loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to the dead uh, politicians, uh, the priests before you. But now it's uh, encouraging. Uh, okay, so this speed up, this breakdown of loyalty, I see what you're saying. You're seeing that as a positive in that uh, those those bonds, uh, we're taught to see them as, as something really great, and you're saying, quite to the contrary, they're the things that are holding us back. But the nice thing about it, you can move. Uh, I started out in Massachusetts, and I was in uh, San Francisco, greatest city in the world for a long time, and now I'm here, I keep moving, and uh, uh, American, by the way. <clears throat> we're the most mobile people that ever lived, as far as oh, I can see. Okay, but wait a minute, if you don't have any real... Uh, link or any grounding in, in the soil where you are, uh, then you get to be kind of a disposable personality. What if you have a wife and you get tired of her, she's, you know, ba breaks her back and you say, sorry, honey, I'm going to oh, get oh, one that's more serviceable. Oh, my God, now. Uh, Aren't we moving <laughs> on? And that's the wife of the broken back? Okay. Well, I mean, we're just talking about what if we're moving fast, what, what about, you know, is the, where does... Kind of childish exactly. irresponsibility begin I know in that kind saying. of a process. I had this conversation a hundred times, uh, dear Jerry. So that uh, uh, none of this implies that you're not going to uh, see teams. I could say teams. Don't think for yourself. Period. Mm -hmm. Think for those close to you. Your family's your team. 
And as I get older, I might not tell you, family and friends. But uh, yeah, you, you belong to many teams, and that doesn't, doesn't mean you're disloyal. You can bring back to your other team what you've learned in the third team. We're going to belong to a lot of teams without uh, fear or prejudice, and making them all better and learning more from each other. Okay. Uh, Rob, thank you very much. We're going to go to Larry in Fremont. Hey, Larry. Hi. Well, I, I thought since uh, Tim Leary's on, this would be a a good time to offer an apologia for psychedelics because um, uh, I don't know if you've talked about this yet on the show, but um, uh, uh, I heard Jerry t- on the subject the other day, and he, he sounded very down on psychedelics, and I thought he didn't really understand the issues involved. Um, uh, first, first of all, um, uh, you said something the other day, Jerry, that uh, you said, well, if, if psychedelics were so great, well, how come every, um, everyone's not uh, enlightened because people were doing them all ki- used to do them all kinds in the 60s? Well, actually... Yeah, Jerry, that is a very... You admit that's a very dumb thing you said, doesn't it? No, what I'm just well, saying, if, look, if we figure no, there... It's a good, it's a, wait a minute, if in the 60s there was, uh, let's supposing there was 10 million, 20 million, let's say there's 100 million doses of LSD, are we that much more enlightened in 1995 than we were in 1960? Yes, actually, it, 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 did, have a, it did have a change in society. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hey, wait, let's hear from Tim here, Larry. Let's... <laughs> what, what Jerry's doing is that he's, going, he's using those, those uh, same old uh, uh, metaphors. Right? Number. Well, no, I'm using numbers, which are yeah. always uh, dubious. 100,000, 100 million, and all this and that. Listen, uh, uh, that's a weird way to think in, in mass, mass, mass movements. Like no, that. here's, I'll tell you, Tim, what I said was I think if, you know, there are ways of, of expanding your awareness. There, there's lots of different practices shamanistic, Zen meditation, Tibetan. Fasting, who knows what? But those monks, 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 monks. There's more. Okay, there's natural methods, as I understand it. There's a more integrated um, experience. Your 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 whole being is bringing this awareness about. Whereas if you just drop a couple of pills, it's you have something foreign ingested into your system, and then it burns out. And then where is it? Whereas if you had to work for it. Through fasting, you know, through flagellation oh, or whatever the hell you do, right? Right. Well, that's the you know that's the that's the Catholic way to do things. You can't get your bliss if you don't suffer first. I know. I know. No, no. Well, you suffer first, or you suffer later. When do you, when do you want it? No, psychedelics are not unnatural. First of all, right. you have you have well, right that's now, true. You can have a naturally grown psych. You can well, no, no, you no, can no. suck even those frogs that give you the good high. Do you read about them? Yeah, sure. But but even now in your brain, there's DMT. Uh, there's a, right. So the question is, how do I access that aspect of my brain? I think that's a great idea. Right. Right. But um, but uh, you know, it, there's nothing. There's no brownie points for doing it. On the natch, it's not any more un. In, it's not any more unnatural. Uh, psychedelics are just as natural as all the other things that you said, uh, um, and they're much more safer than than these very um, very extreme, dangerous uh, things you find um, in, for instance, uh, uh, like uh, like fasting and, and flagellation and so on. They have uh, in the in in the organized religions. See. You got under. It's not instant enlightenment. You don't drop a hit, and I th- and I. I'm sorry to say, Tim. I think that was your mistake in the '60s. Is you said that for Christ's sake, and I. Everybody gets the Timothy Leary they deserve. 
Yeah. Where you see me, well, you're stuck with it. But <laughs> yeah, but what, I, what I'm saying is these things are, they're like, they're like books. And they're, they're sources of information, and, and what you do, you... Now, wait a minute, see, I don't agree with that, uh, but go on. And you access the information as a, as a point of reference. As a good, then, good literary scholar, you... Okay, Larry, Larry, I'm going well, to... I'm going to Wait a minute, I'm going to let you go there, because there's a lot of people lined up, and we want to just digest that point, the, the, if, not to mix metaphors here. You said that the, the ingestion of one of these psychedelics is like getting a book inside your brain. I want Tim to respond to that. Right, that's nonsense. We're talking about the brain. We're talking about uh, natural, natural chemicals designed by DNA or whatever goddess you worship over the years in synchronicity with the human brain so there are certain vegetable products that can activate different circuits in your brain. And uh, the, uh, we're just now, as a species, learning about uh, Candace Perk, that wonderful uh, uh, psychiatrist in Pennsylvania. What was, what was his name? K-E-R-R? P-E-R-T, yeah. Receptocytes, she demonstrated, and now it's taken for granted in neurology that the brain has these receptocytes, uh, the locks that are opened by the keys of various vegetable products. Okay. They're called brain-activating or neural-activating drugs. And they're natural. They're natural as anything. In fact, the basic thing, the brain, you know, the bodies come and go, but the brain's going to keep going and using different bodies. And the brain lives on light, and the brain lives on uh, uh, exchange of light, so that uh, you, don't to, you don't have to worry about uh, books. Who is books? Uh, you talk about the brain. You think the book, uh, the era of the book, has pretty well had it? Well, you're, you're, you're always going for the juggler. We'll always be using books. We'll always be painting pictures. Nothing's had it. It's okay. going to add. It's that, see, Huxley told us that. He said, it's not either or. And the priests and the politicians are always going to say, it's either this or it's that. It's both and. It ain't that way. It's both and and more ands and more your ands and my ands, and uh, it's never either or, because that's, uh, that's the good evil. I mean, I mean it isn't, it isn't either. Uh, so, in other words, it isn't either Clinton or Ginrich. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. <laughs> Beautiful you said that. <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of people think, though. That, that's why Clinton is doing so well. They say, well, wait a minute, what do you want, Ginrich? Well, uh, and they say, okay, under those circumstances, Clinton yeah. looks real good. Well, and in fact, the, uh, the, the Democrats historically have been much more interested in, in freeing individuals. They fought the big, the big guys, but uh, that's changing, too. You bet the unions changed. used to be very, very much for people. Now they become bureaucracies, too. So you have to keep changing. Keep changing. Yep. Keep, keep changing teams. You're listening to We the People. This is Jerry Brown. And I'm talking to Tim Leary. Uh, on the line now from, uh, let's see, uh, there's Thea. Hey, how, how, hey, how long is this going to go Another on? 15 minutes? Oh, um, maybe. Another couple of minutes? Uh, two or three more questions. Okay, okay. okay. Let us do that. Uh, Theo. Yes, I'm right here. Yeah. Hi, Timothy. My name is Theo Cedar. Hi. Hi, it's good to hear you. You haven't met me, but I've been um, a student of your books and of your uh, legacy since I was 18 years old. I'm now 32. I've been taking psychedelics for 14 years, and... Um, I just wanted to ask you if you had any particular message for the next uh, new generation of leadership in this area of psychedelics and consciousness. Wow. <laughs> That's a big one. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, there are many, many ways to grow and, and study them carefully, but whatever you do, do it in groups, teams. Don't do it by yourself. 
Okay, Tim, we, I want you to stay around just a couple more minutes. I want to take a 30-second break, and then I want to talk just about your own personal state of mind uh, right now, and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll let you go. You're listening to We the People. This is Jerry Brown. We'll be right back. You're back with uh, We the People. This is Jerry Brown. I'm talking to Tim Leary. Uh, Tim, I want to ask you, at your, before earlier in the day when we were speaking, uh, you were talking about your own personal uh, well-being and, and that you've been diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer. And, and maybe I, I think our listeners would really like, uh, would appreciate having, just getting your sense of how you react to that and, and how you, you know, what you're doing now to, you know, what does a human being do at this, at this point in their life? Well, that, I can't uh, speak for human beings. I can only speak for myself. Okay. Uh, a, That's a good place. Ultimate taboo here. Well, we politicians always think in these big, big uh, uh, bloated categories. Uh, thank God someone's doing it. But, uh, so uh, you were telling me though about uh, how you pr- how you think about your own death and what you're doing about it. Yes, uh, uh, I think any sensible person would do this. When I got to be fifty, uh, I actually was in prison then. But since the seventies, I have been uh, planning, thinking about my dying because after all, that's going to be the, the climax, the final going away party. And uh, you can't believe the taboo that if you start talking about how you're going to die or the ways of dying, you will usually clear the cocktail party. No one wants to talk to you. Uh, it's been surprising to me that I've now announced that, that uh, I'm already planning my, my deanimation and I'm going to, uh, my house is being fixed up so that uh, there's a room, a most comfortable, pleasant room where I plan to uh, have a plug pulled or I'll, I'll pull the plug myself at the prepared, by the way, and, 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 and guided by, by lots of friends that uh, hopefully help in this uh, situation. When that happens, then uh, next door, next uh, room, there's a reanimation room, and uh, the Alcor Cryonics group are going to be there, and uh, they will, uh, as soon as I'm uh, autopsied, uh, uh, first your heart goes in a thrilling time, about two or three or four minutes, when your brain is alive, but the body is Well, you don't know it's thrilling, though, do you? I mean, that's what your anticipation. Well, yeah, I don't know, but uh, I'm going to try to send messages back. How about that? Well, do, do you have any fear of your own dying? No, I, I'm looking forward to it with, like, the final, uh, it's like, uh, yeah. you, you have no choice of where you're born or with whom, and uh, society usually determines uh, who you marry and all that, but planning your own uh, going away party uh, should be the climax the golden uh, uh, celebration of uh, everything that you tried to do in your life. And uh, I'm really thrilled by uh, the, uh, this is a real new terrain here. And uh, I'm amazed at the response. Some people, of course, get very upset, but many, many people are thrilled that finally, finally someone's talking about the ultimate do. Let's not be afraid of dying or death, but uh, let's figure out how to make this into something that uh, is the glorious uh, last act of your life. Now, of course, when you're dying, that's something, your friends are there, but uh, it must be, a, obviously, it's a very singular experience. I mean, it's just you're dying, it's not anybody else's. Well, you're using singular, you know, I don't know, uh, of course, but uh, if, if my last, last uh, years and my last minutes and seconds are, are surrounded by a group of people that, that uh, love me and all that, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's not chopped liver. Uh, no, it isn't. Ch- no, it isn't. And, uh, you know, I said, so I'm not going to do it alone, and then, of course, uh, 
Yeah, well, I, I, I've done enough Sundays sermonizing on that. Uh, I'm preaching to the, to the Father here, but uh, no, I, I think go now. But I wanted to repeat again: uh, you've always been a, a hero of mine, and I'm delighted to talk. Let's talk again. Uh, Timothy Leary, thank you very much for sharing this time with you or with us. Uh, very fascinating, and I really appreciate your being willing to, you know, to be so uh, open and honest. Uh, I think it was real fascinating and very human. And thank you very much. Thank you, Jerry. Bye-bye. Okay. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. By now, it is well known that Timothy Leary is dying of inoperable prostate cancer, that the man once called the high priest of LSD is determined to choreograph his own death, perhaps a suicide over the Internet, much as he once advocated choreographing one's own consciousness with mind-altering drugs. Most of the news industry accounts paint a picture of some kind of failing P.T. Barnum-like character holding his own wake before he dies, but many of Mr. Leary's friends present a different picture, someone who's a scholar, an entertainer, folk hero, and a free thinker, NPR's Margot Adler reports. There are those who think they know Timothy Leary as a demon who destroyed people's lives through psychedelics, or as a saint who brought them enlightenment, or they think he's a nut or a clown, an entertainer, Robert Anton Wilson, philosopher and author of the Illuminatus Trilogy, says he has known Leary since 1970. He said to me once, there are 24 Timothy Learys, and which one you contact depends on your own state of intelligence at the moment. I think I've contacted about 17 of them, and I hope in my next few visits to him I get to see the other seven. Most people who love or hate Timothy Leary talk about his work with psychedelic drugs, although that is no longer Leary's primary interest. Leary's work has gone from drugs to space colonies to computers. He's designed six computer games. Frank Barron, who along with Leary co-directed the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1960 and 1961, and like Leary was a psychologist in Berkeley before that, says much of the impetus behind their original investigations into psychedelics in Berkeley came out of a reaction to the nuclear bomb. For one thing, Berkeley in the, in the late 40s was really the, the bomb mind capital of the world. And psychologists like Barron and Leary, whose own wife had committed suicide while in therapy, believed events in the world were moving faster than psychology. They wanted better ways of changing human nature. There had to be an acceleration on that end of it, that is on the psychological understanding end, more attention to feeling, more attention to consciousness of the whole human being, at Harvard, Leary used LSD with prisoners and with divinity students. He left Harvard in 1963 after criticism by Harvard administrators. Leary hit the streets with what poet Allen Ginsberg later called the democratization of LSD, the use of psychedelics by thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, in the 1960s. Here is Leary speaking in the mid-60s, answering the question of whether these drugs are dangerous. They're dangerous to uh, anyone who has a vested interest in any of our psychological or psychiatric or educational programs because there's no question in our mind that we open up new possibilities of learning without teachers, of understanding yourself without doctors, and of coming to an awed and reverent understanding of life without a spiritual guide or a minister. Now, this is going to play havoc with uh, lots of the games that are being played and lots of the control uh, uh, which is being exercised in our society. David Horowitz is the author of Destructive Generation, Second Thoughts About the 60s. He blames Leary for those followers who went over the edge. He does not take any responsibility for what he has done, who he's influenced, the lives he's destroyed. It's a nihilistic attitude. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to 
lead people down the primrose path and, you know, damn the consequences. On the other side, Nina Graboy. I am 77 now. A Holocaust survivor from Vienna and at one time Leary's secretary, Graboy says she experienced a larger transcendent reality. When we have to leave that endless horizon, when we're compressed back into our little bodies and our little personalities, we cry. Graboy says she is grateful to Leary. If Timothy had not come out with this immense courage, I would never have known about it. I'd still probably live in Long Island suburbs and be miserable. <laughs> Leary's own life seemed out of a movie. He was charged with possessing marijuana in 1966. He was sent to prison, climbed a telephone pole, escaped, and was handed over to members of the Black Panther Party in Algiers by members of the Weather Underground. Later, the Panthers disowned him. There are those who say when he returned to the United States and prison, he ratted on his liberators to achieve his freedom. But Robert Anton Wilson says Leary got out of jail because he didn't accept the reality of an isolation cell in Folsom Prison. Uh, he didn't accept that reality tunnel. He accepted the reality tunnel that he'd work his way out of there and get himself a, a house high up in Beverly Hills, and that's what he did. Because he doesn't accept any definition as final even if it's backed up by walls and guards and rifles and guns and watchtowers and the whole machinery of the most powerful military state in the history of the world. Some, like Wilson, would argue that Leary's interests have been on a single theme, whether psychology, drugs, or technology. The abiding issue has been freedom from society's control. Even Leary's latest interest in choreographing his own death is in character. How are you doing? Well, I'm, every day is interesting. I'm enjoying life. Timothy Leary on the phone from his home this past Wednesday. Death, says Leary, is the most explosive control issue. Throughout history, the religious people wanted to control the dying. And, uh, of course, the medical profession wants to control us. Control, control, control of the dying. It may seem off the wall to control your death, says Leary, but it's in keeping with a life committed to thinking for yourself. Robert Anton Wilson adds this. Think how often the moment of death is decided by others. The decision rests either with the attorney general or the archbishop or the chief rabbi or the celestial yap or the grand dragon of the AMA. Leary's insisting that every individual has the right to choose their own time and manner of death and that these authorities have no real authority at all except when we neurotically give our power away to them instead of holding on to our power. Looking at it from the point of view of freedom and control, there is a certain logic to Leary's flirtation with cryonically freezing his brain. The science of cryonics may still have a few kinks, but it's a way of multiplying your options. But Leary ended his relationship with a cryonics company last week. The company wanted him to have round-the-clock nursing care so that the exact moment of his death could be ascertained. Feeling constrained, Leary said he didn't want to wake up 50 years in the future surrounded by men with clipboards. Robert Anton Wilson, long a proponent of cryonics himself, says Leary always treated the subject with humor. Uh, most people in the cryonics movement are very serious about it. Tim has a cartoon in his living room of a bunch of heads in a cryonic freezer and a janitor walking by accidentally kicking out the plug so they're all going to thaw out. And when Tim saw me looking at that, he says, well, we really can't be too serious about all this. In the same way, Leary's desire to commit suicide on the Internet is also about control. No one will cut it, interpret it, or put in a commercial break. Leary is also taking the gloom out of death. Michael Horowitz is a bookseller, author, and the person responsible for Timothy Leary's archives. He says Leary's home is far from somber. 
it's a party atmosphere with, with intellectual excitement at all times. And he's not like hiding. You know, Tim, Timothy doesn't look good. He's lost a lot of weight. He's very gaunt. And he's in a wheelchair now. He, he goes out on Sunset Boulevard to clubs in his wheelchair. Harwitz is trying to get a university to buy Leary's archives. Harwitz notes that Leary has written more than 25 books. Most of them have sold about 25,000 copies, but they have been translated worldwide. Harwitz concedes that Leary's books are not taken seriously, except by a small group of people, and that he is seen more as a clown than a scholar. That, he says, is also part of Leary's character. If you met him at a party and went, or you saw him lecture, the focus would ne not necessarily be on the ideas. When they were, they wouldn't be treated with seriousness. But I think there's a method to that style, which is that people learn better when they're being entertained. His challenging of the established order, reckless at times, says Harwitz, will elevate him into an American folk hero after his death. Nina Graboy says she finds it amusing that some people are saying that Timothy Leary will be seen as a saint. I'm sure eventually he'll have been born on a lotus uh, blossom or something like that. <laughs> the man is very much a man with his feet that are sometimes a little bit of clay, but it's the most fascinating mind that I've ever come across, and I've come across a few. But David Horowitz, a critic of the culture of the 60s and no relation to Michael, says whether you are talking about drugs in the 60s or Leary's current obsession with cyber culture, there's a lot of pseudo-religion going on here, not to mention an escape from adulthood. An awful lot of what's called a counterculture is kind of is an effort to replace a religious belief uh, system that's been lost. That's what puts me off his, you know, cyber uh, chatter. It's based on this, you know, always looking for, for the vision that will allow us to escape, you know, our lot. But of course, it's that scream against the human lot in life that has fueled every visionary. It's the grist for every utopian novel. Robert Anton Wilson, a writer of speculative fiction himself, says Leary is an arch-heretic who deserves all the malice directed at him. He really is a menace to our way of life. He has always been concerned with the extent to which we play robot roles that have been conditioned or imprinted into us by our families and societies. And Leary does profoundly threaten to draw people awake into a much, into life more abundant, as another prophet once said. Timothy Leary, speaking in 1989. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, if you're Lord and God is a shepherd, I ask you, what does that make you? Bah! <laughs> Seventy-five, the arch-heretic only has a little time left. You can call up Leary's webpage over the internet, wander into several of his virtual rooms, peek at his library and get an update on his daily drug intake, which includes a daily dozen gulps of nitrous oxide as a painkiller and a sizable number of cigarettes. Although David Horowitz says the 60s generation has never wanted to grow up, Leary's last act of defiance seems to be full of so much humor and optimism it seems unfair to dismiss it as a mere tantrum. I'm Margot Adler reporting. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
I don't know if you remember those days or not, but when Timothy Leary began to describe the way he fixed up the room that he intended to die in, I was uh, mentally brought back to those times once again, and I can recall uh, very clearly what his website was like at the time. You know, as you may remember, there were uh, all kinds of rumors floating around about him saying that his death would be live over the internet. And to be honest, uh, I found it kind of ghoulish myself, but then I'd only just barely escaped the claws of death myself about a year earlier. You see, uh, in April 1995, I underwent surgery for prostate cancer. And now here, uh, not even one year later, was Timothy Leary very publicly dying from the very same cancer that I had just survived. It's, uh, it's really not possible for me to describe the range of emotions that were raging through me at the time, but I can assure you that I wasn't very wild about how publicly Timothy was dying. Personally, uh, I want to die very quietly and not make a fuss. But uh, let's face it, <laughs> in the case of Timothy Leary, how else could he die but surrounded by faithful friends and with a big smile on his face? At least that's how I want to picture it. So, uh, just now we heard not only a few thoughts uh, that others had about Timothy Leary in the weeks just before he died, but we also heard a few of his own thoughts close to that time, which was in the October 1995 radio interview with Jerry Brown. Now, as I've mentioned here before, during several conversations that I've had with two of my close friends, both of whom are much more familiar with the life and work of Dr. Leary than I am, we all came to the conclusion that if ever there was a person in our own lifetimes who led a life that Joseph Campbell would characterize as a hero's journey, well, it was Dr. Timothy Leary. Of necessity, uh, a life like that must be full of contradictions and difficult relationships and encounters that leave a thousand and one different impressions of the man. But never having met him in person myself, all of my impressions come from reading his books, listening to his lectures, reading about him in the popular press, and most importantly, from conversations with people who knew him at various times in his life. So who was the real Timothy Leary? Well, obviously he was all of the above. We all are, aren't we? I know in my own life there are quite a few things that I wish I hadn't done, you know, people that I wish I hadn't hurt, directions that I wish I hadn't taken, and directions that I wish I had taken but didn't. However, uh, if you ask me how I want to be remembered, I would say that, well, I want to be remembered as I am today, the sum total of all the characters I've played in this life. It's really interesting to me to have visited at length with some of the people who, in one way or another, were associated with Dr. Leary in what is generally called the 60s, and then contrast their opinions of him with those who knew him in the last, uh, oh, 15 or so years of his life. In short, uh, those groups, they hold vastly different views of him. But I guess it's because I'm a grandfather myself that my deepest impression of Timothy Leary as a person comes from a video I saw that Alan Lundell shot at a Leary Memorial in San Francisco a few years ago. And it was Tim Leary's granddaughter who said some things about her grandfather that literally brought tears to my eyes and caused me to see through all of the negative stories that I'd heard and read and to see him simply as a caring, loving human being. Someone who, despite his many faults, was deserving of much love. At his core, at least to me, he was a truly exceptional being, and I honor him for having the courage to take that most difficult of all paths, the hero's journey. 
And so I guess that's enough of my sentimental old man talk for a while, huh? <laughs> now, before I go, I want to mention again something about the Worldwide Occupy movement. As you may have noticed, uh, I'm no longer beginning these podcasts by giving the number of days since the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations began. And the reason for that is that the more I read about the movement and the more it becomes apparent to me that the September 17th date is not actually the beginning of things. In fact, there are a whole lot of earlier demonstrations that could be credited with kicking off this resurgence in activism against the power elite. And if I were going to point to just one event, which, as I said, isn't really fair to all of the activists who have been on this path for years... Well, then I'd probably point to the Indignados movement in Spain that began a half a year before the first campers put up their tents in Zuccotti Park in New York City. And I mention them today because today, March 29th, 2012, there's a huge general strike underway in Spain, which is something that still hasn't happened here in the U.S., although in my opinion it's uh, only a matter of time before such large displays of discontent on the part of the working class takes place here and elsewhere. So I want to be sure that not only our fellow Saloners in Spain know that I'm supporting them, but that I'm also in solidarity with all of the wonderful people of Spain, including some of my own family members who live there. Also, I want to mention that I've received messages from some of our fellow Saloners in the UK, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada, and in dozens of cities around the U.S. who are still out there on the front lines doing their best to throw monkey wrenches into the wheels of the global economic and police state machines that are squeezing the life out of working people, including those working class people who aren't working because there are no jobs available. Now, in case you haven't been keeping up with the news of the movement, now that most of the big occupations have been mercilessly and brutally uh, squashed by the power elite, Uh, which, of course, means that the corporate-controlled media is able to ignore the huge underground current of changing consciousness that the Occupy movement represents. In case you aren't uh, keeping up with news of the movement, I'd like to suggest that you become involved at the very minimum by seeking out news about the Occupy movement on your own. If you're listening to this podcast, that uh, indicates to me that you also have access to news sources on the Internet. And a simple search on the word Occupy in your local area will most likely result in more stories than you have time to read. And as much as I'd like to continue doing two-part podcasts where the second half is about the Occupy movement, what I've found is that I just don't have the energy to, well, essentially to do two podcasts a week, which is uh, what that amounts to. So I'll still be covering the movement in these podcasts, but it'll have to be more in the form of a complete Occupy podcast every uh, few weeks, rather than the way I've been doing it in the past. My point, uh, I guess, is that just because you don't hear me talking about the movement in great detail every week, it doesn't mean that I've lost my enthusiasm for what is taking place in almost every corner of the globe. From the foreclosure occupations, to the student loan occupations, to the unemployment occupations, and to dozens of other forms of this movement, there is a lot going on. And I hope that you'll participate at the very minimum by keeping yourself informed about it. For I still believe that uh, as long as we can help to keep this movement alive and growing, that there still is hope for our species, uh, in spite of all the negative uh, news around the world. You know, consciousness is on the move once again, and 
It's up to you and me to see that we eventually get to a tipping point where those who hold the economic strings of our lives, uh, well, they finally get it. So uh, press on, bold occupiers. The whole world is depending upon you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>